You're listening to the N2K Space Network. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. All right. You know we have to address the major issue splashed across the front pages right now, and that's the one that's rumors and speculation coming from the U.S. political world involving Russia, space, and nukes. That's guaranteed media hysteria when you put those three things together. Now, we don't want to add any fuel to that fire because there's nothing really to go on here. If that changes and we have credible, publicly sourceable claims to report on, we will share that with you. But in the meantime, we're moving on. T-minus. 20 seconds to LOS. Go for the floor. Today is February 15th, 2024. I'm Maria Varmazis, and this is T-Minus. SpaceX launches the Intuitive Machines Lunar Lander mission and carries satellites for the Missile Defense Agency and Space Development Agency to LEO in a separate launch. Varda finally gets approval to land its W-1 capsule. And our guest today is Dr. Yaren Eski, Associate Professor in Public Administration at Vrij University Amsterdam, talking about space criminology. Yeah, who's going to commit crimes in space, and when that happens, how do we deal with them? Join us for that really fascinating chat in the second half of today's program. Let's take a look at our Intel briefing for today. And another lunar landing attempt by a commercial space company has launched this morning. This time it's Intuitive Machines, and their mission, IM-1, lifted off on a SpaceX Falcon 9 this morning at 1.05 a.m. Eastern Time from Launch Complex 39A at Kennedy Space Center in Florida. And the company has confirmed that the mission has successfully established radio contact with Mission Ops in Houston, as well as reaching a stable attitude and starting solar charging. The goal is to have its Nova C-class lunar lander, the Odysseus, land at the crater Malapert A near the lunar south pole. IM-1 is part of NASA's Commercial Lunar Payload Service Program and is carrying five NASA payloads aboard, as well as commercial cargo. 
Now, Odysseus, or Odie as it's also being called, will be studying plume surface interactions, radio astronomy, and space weather interactions with the lunar surface. It will also demonstrate precision landing technologies and communication and navigation node capabilities. Should all continue to go nominally for Odie, NASA says we can expect to see a lunar landing attempt on February 22nd. Go Odie! Yesterday, we mentioned a planned, secretive SpaceX launch from Florida, and today we have more details to share. The Missile Defense Agency, also known as MDA, and the Space Development Agency confirmed the successful launch of six satellites to low Earth orbit from Space Launch Complex 40 at Cape Canaveral Space Force Base by a Falcon 9 rocket. The launch included two satellites for MDA's hypersonic and ballistic tracking space sensor, as well as the final four SDA Tranche Zero tracking layer satellites for the SDA's proliferated warfighter space architecture. And all of the satellites were safely delivered to orbit and are conducting initial testing. The U.S. Space Force has reportedly canceled a multi-billion dollar Northrop Grumman program to develop a classified military communication satellite because of increased costs, difficulties developing its payload, and a schedule delay. According to an exclusive Bloomberg report, Northrop was formally notified last month of the termination within the organization's restricted space business. The company's filing offered no details on the classified satellite or the reasons that this was called off. Varda has received long-awaited approval from the Federal Aviation Administration to bring its first spacecraft back to Earth— The vehicle was launched in June last year, and the company has been working with the FAA to receive approval for a Part 450 re-entry license to land the spacecraft back on U.S. soil. Varda is expected to re-enter its small W Series 1 capsule down to the Air Force's Utah Test and Training Range on February 21st. The W-1 mission is a demonstration of the company's automated in-space manufacturing process, which successfully produced the drug Ritonavir. Blue Halo has announced its intentions to acquire Eclipse Technologies, which is a leading provider of differentiated products and solutions to the Department of Defense and Intelligence community. According to the press release, the combined entity will have a total employee count of nearly 2,400 across 11 states and annual revenue approaching $1 billion. The transaction is expected to close in Q1 2024. VAST has selected Singapore-based satellite communications company AdValue to provide radio frequency communication system for its Haven 1 space station. VAST's Haven 1 is scheduled to launch on a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket no earlier than August 2025 and is expected to be the world's first crewed private space station. VAST plans to use inter-satellite data relay system transceivers that are made by AdValue which can provide on-demand, real-time connectivity with Haven 1 through the Viasat-Inmarsat-Alera network. Voyager Space has been awarded a contract by Millennium Space Systems to build 13 flight model star trackers and two engineering models. Phase delivery is slated for late 2024 through early 2025 to support Millennium's small satellite constellation programs. The UK Space Agency has announced £7.4 million in funding for research institutions working on missions to the Moon, Mars, and Venus. 
The projects that will receive a share of the funding include research at Royal Holloway that's looking to develop software for the Indian Space Agency's Chandrayaan-2 orbiter to detect ice under the surface of the lunar south pole. Open University and the Universities of Sussex, Aberdeen, and Cambridge are also teaming up with NASA, the Canadian Space Agency, and JAXA. Talis Alenia Space has signed a contract with prime contractor Ball Aerospace, while it's still named that, to supply communications equipment for NASA's NEO surveyor mission. The five-year mission aims to advance efforts to defend our planet against near-Earth objects like asteroids and comets. NEO Surveyor will employ an infrared space telescope designed to discover and characterize at least two-thirds of the near-Earth objects, more than 460 feet across, capable of causing significant damage should they impact the Earth. Talisalenia Space will provide S-band transponder, K-band modulator, and K-band traveling wave tube amplifier equipment for the NEO Surveyor spacecraft. And a new supply of cargo is heading to the International Space Station, courtesy of the Russian Progress 87 cargo ship. The capsule was launched atop of a Soyuz rocket from Kazakhstan and is carrying about three tons of food, propellant, and other supplies, and it's all expected to reach the ISS on Saturday. That concludes our briefing for today. We've included links to further reading in our show notes and added in an additional story on the one we all know about, the space Russian nukes rumors, and a story from space.com on water found on an asteroid for the first time. Those links and more can also be found on our website, space.n2k.com, and just click on this episode title. Hey, T-Minus crew, if your business is looking to grow your voice in the industry, expand the reach of your thought leadership, or recruit talent, T-Minus can help. We'd love to hear from you. Just send us an email at space at n2k.com or send us a note through our website so we can connect about building a program to meet your goals. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Our guest today is Dr. Yaren Eski, Associate Professor in Public Administration at Vrij University Amsterdam. And I spoke to Yaren about his research in space criminology and started by asking him just to explain what that is. So space criminology, which is actually for criminology itself, is, a, is an interesting wording because within criminology, we look at uh, space, as in like streets and the environment and how it might lead to certain crime or what makes a space criminogenic. So how, how does it create uh, crime? Whereas actually, when we talk about space criminology, we go back to the original meaning of the word, outer space, 
outer space criminology. Sounds like semantics, but it, it matters for, for uh, criminology as a, as a whole. But then what, what does it do? Well, the most simple explanation, I would say, is looking at crime that takes place on Earth, but then in space. Uh, <laughs> that's quite basic. Um, <laughs> we can start with that. <laughs> that works. Yeah. <laughs> but it also looks at how to control it then in, in space or via space, uh, policing it, what kind of criminal justice systems may we need, but and also how to research this, how to get to space or at least as close as possible. And as you can imagine, it's a very young area of study also for criminology, but also I would say in general, uh, I think it follows the footsteps of, of Space anthropology, space psychology, space sociology, space philosophy, space law. And we're all trying, as space criminologists, we're trying to combine these space uh, social sciences together with the space sciences, so the, the better side of it, because space has its own characteristics, of course, which may or may not be, be criminogenic in and of themselves. Uh, for example, um, what does it do to someone living in outer space for quite a while and, um, yeah, getting bored or frustrated or, you know, these are quite essential questions and to which extent may it lead to transgressive, conflictuous situations or, or harmful harmful behavior and perhaps also law-breaking behavior. Yeah, I especially, and I know this is getting into very long-term thinking, but again, this is all uh, a lot of thinking in the, about the future. When we're talking about civilians living in space, not necessarily... Uh, somebody who is a trained, you know, military personnel. What laws govern their behavior? I mean, I guess that is my first question. What laws are even applicable in that situation? I mean, is everything just going back to the outer space treaty? Does that even apply here? I, I, I don't even know where to start. It's I'm so fascinated. <laughs> yeah, this is more of a I would say a legal scholar question, but I can answer it to to an extent. Um, again, I'm a criminologist, and and we tend to take pride in the fact that we're not legal scholars. So, yeah, just <laughs> fair enough. Um, fair enough. <laughs> no, but you say say a few words about that. Um, there's the Outer Space Treaty, and there's the ISS regulations, and there is now also, I believe, Canada has proposed to um, criminalize any uh, criminal behavior on the moon. Still in the proposal phase, I believe. There are other kind of tenets designed how to behave proper and and how to behave according to law and it's implied also uh, based on the outer space treaty that each nation has its own responsibility to take respons yeah, to take responsibility for proceeding uh, in court uh, or to investigate uh, in case something might go wrong but it's not really set in stone this is the interesting bit so yes we've got rules and there are laws and and we also kind of have an idea of how we could go about um, but as you've seen, or maybe you've noticed, when the whole Anne McLean case came up, the first space crime ever, uh, the headings were in uh, in the US, which turned out to be a uh, well a false accusation, I believe. But it did uh, stir up the the whole legal discussion, like, oh, now what? You know <laughs> how? Uh, so how do we deal with that? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So there's yeah. that, and I think space criminologies. Even before that, that phase of, of how to deal with it, how to prosecute it, uh, also, it's, a, it's about how can this start? And this is where it becomes interesting because there are tons and tons of libraries full of, of, of literature for centuries now on 
what could cause crime uh, and how, how does it manifest itself and how does it lead to potential damage on Earth. And sure, this all matters and we can learn a lot from that. But me, it's specific. I, I'm specifically also interested in how does that relate to, to specifics of space, um, both in terms of the hostile environment it, it is, uh, but also that in space, we can only live in confined spaces, which is quite, quite weird if you think about it. What does that do? And are those confined spaces different in space than, for example, in a submarine or uh, in a prison? Or, I mean, there's all this knowledge, definitely, but how does that apply to the space environment? And are we talking about planetary uh, new spaces or are we talking about in, out of orbit or what are we talking about? So these very basic questions that are probably very um, boring in the meantime for space sciences themselves are fundamental to explore for space criminology. From my point of view regarding space criminology, there are already things going on that we might consider quite problematic in terms of criminal or at least not in compliance with Earth's criminal justice uh, and criminal laws. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Like, what, what are you thinking of specifically? Space debris. I think that's the one that's very clearly not environmentally friendly to the space environment, I would say. But also think of the Point Nemo, and where they uh, basically bring back all the non-functioning or non-operational space craft. So it's like a spacecraft graveyard uh, down there, which is also polluting the environment. It's back on Earth, but, you know, even the active space stuff that is out there, it's blinding, literally blinding our sight into space. This is why we need, you know, floating telescopes to have a better view for us uh, also. But so we are doing what we are doing on Earth for centuries. We are polluting the environment and we're also doing so in outer space, also on the moon, on Mars. Oh, there's like a piece of Maybe it's an alien equipment or something. No, it turns out that it's debris just floating around on Mars. Uh, so it's, it really messes also with, with space exploration. Perhaps not crime in the strict sense of the word, but it is in a way an eco-crime. And then even further, maybe not even a crime in that sense, uh, and not even an eco-crime, but just the fact that we as a, as a human species uh, or a species from Earth go elsewhere Interplanetary uh, contamination, for example, is, is a real thing. And, and astrobiologists are quite worried about that. Like, um, who are we to do that and, and contaminate another planet? And uh, not only then, for example, uh, discover bacteria that that actually comes originally from Earth. Um, but also we can go back, pick up this Mars dust, dust for example, and as safely as possible, we, we try to research this. But what if... We bring back a bacteria that we are simply not capable of seeing, hearing, smelling because we are from Earth. <laughs> uh, these are not sci-fi questions anymore. These these are these are actual questions and worries. And I I think space criminology has tasked to also explore these kind of um, damages that are already taking place next to the the known crimes that the, the, the everyday. A uh, person knows, like, oh, yeah, yeah, crime uh, is like robbery and, and assault and, and murder. And, and and I think also for that category of crime, that that is also going to happen at some point when more people are enabled to go into space. In fact, there are worries in, in, in the astronaut community that next to 
these companies can that are going to do whatever they want to do apparently i mean it's in starlink's uh, terms and conditions uh, like we're not gonna care about what what, what earth's regulations are um i believe it's still stated as such um but what about people going up there like what what are they going to care uh and even if we have laws in place right even if there's a martian criminal justice system if we don't have an actual organization to uphold and enforce yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah what, what does anything mean without teeth right yeah so yeah what exactly are you going to catch me here or so I think not necessarily the lawlessness, because to be very honest and it's very very blunt, I think creating new laws is not even that hard. I mean, you need to get international agreement. It might take a couple of decades, but having an actual capable uh, space criminal justice system or a space police, you know, as Lego used to uh, <laughs> used to create. Again, as we get more people on Earth, we're going to bring our very human behaviors with us. Sorry, off of Earth. <laughs> off of Earth. It is inevitable. In a way, it's it's very nihilistic and sad in a way, of course. And But there are worries that also, because the elites uh, that are most likely to be the first ones that are enabled uh, and can enable themselves to go to other planets or the moon as uh, civilians, uh, let me put it this way. Yeah, it's, it's white-collar crime. Uh, yes. You know, <laughs> and who's going to stop them? <laughs> who's going to stop how, how them? How does one stop? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they probably have their own security as detail as well. So, so this is, I would say, uh, next to the worries about space debris and also satellite um, destruction, which is more war-related, of course, the old-fashioned crimes, the everyday crimes, they may not be as uh, as much as volume taking place of, of of these crimes in space as we have on Earth right now. But then again, um, it might happen. And I've also hypothesized, I, I sometimes wonder to which extent this also has like immediate geopolitical con- consequences. Like on Earth, if, if one astronaut from a certain country to another astronaut um, yeah, commits a violent act, uh, you know, or assaults the other person. And so there are, as you can hear, there are so many um, basic criminological questions, um, as well as basic common sense questions. But I do think that they require a scientific and evidence-based uh, approach uh, and knowledge creation, but also methods. Like, how the hell am I, like this plain criminologist with a normal income, it's impossible. And I don't think any company is going to fund a space criminologist. So the, the closest we can get is through virtual reality and I would say the studies of analog missions. How are you going to do that? You know, how are you going to instruct uh, people to like what, enact uh, a crime or something? Or um, in VR, how far can you go? Not everything that is possible to research is, uh, should be researched. There are many, many, many questions involved here, uh, but not doing anything would let the luxury go. Uh, yeah, having the luxury of doing something before the act. So for the first time, I would say, compared to the aviation domain, the maritime domain, the cyber domain, where we waited until something happened, We'll be right back.
And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Welcome back. It's been a few weeks since Japan landed its Slim craft on the moon, and we figured it was time for an update. Slim, which you might remember stands for Smart Lander for Investigating Moon, has been actively using its multiband spectral camera to analyze the composition of rocks and is conducting examinations of lunar rock samples. JAXA says it's looking for data that could point to the origins of the moon. And the vehicle has collected data from 10 rock samples, which have been given the names of dog breeds, such as Akita Inu, Beagle, and Shiba Inu. And we imagine that they found a rock that looked like a dog, and thus the naming convention was started. And by comparing the mineral compositions of moon rocks and those of Earth, JAXA is hoping to find out if the rocks have common elements to support the giant impact hypothesis— you know, the one that says uh, the theory that the moon is formed as a result of the Earth colliding with another planet. SLIM is now in hibernation that will last until late February. It remains unknown if the probe and its spectroscope will be able to survive the severe cold night temperatures and then be able to wake up when sunlight returns. The two transformers, by the way, that we were so <laughs> hyped up about have now completed their mission of recording SLIM's initial work and sadly have since stopped working. So for now, the Japanese space agency has the information that it has collected thus far, and they'll get back to all of us on what they find. That's it for T-Minus for February 15th, 2024. For additional resources from today's report, check out our show notes at space.n2k.com. We're privileged that N2K and podcasts like T-Minus are part of the daily routine of many of the most influential leaders and operators in the public and private sector, from the Fortune 500 to many of the world's preeminent intelligence and law enforcement agencies. This episode was produced by Alice Carruth, mixing by Elliot Peltzman and Trey Hester, with original music and sound design by Elliot Peltzman. Our executive producer is Jen Ivan. Our VP is Brandon Karp. And I'm Maria Varmazis. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. T-minus.